two, one. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So we have special guest uh, Melanie here today, all the way from Australia. Yes, we love your beautiful accent. <laughs> so tell us a little about yourselves because I've done so much research and I'm super excited to have you as a guest. Uh, and I think that what you are sharing and spreading and what you're doing should be much more um, normal. And it's for whatever reason in the US, it's not. Mm, yeah, well, yes. So I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I live in the Blue Mountains, which is just a little bit out of the city. And I am a private midwife. I qualified as a midwife about 11 years ago and went straight into private practice midwifery, which here in Australia means that women can access birth at home with their own midwife. So I'm fully registered, fully legal, very qualified to work in that role. Um, it's a little bit of a hostile political situation around it, but it's completely legal and manageable. Um, so I, that's me in my clinical work. I also work as an academic at a local university where I just sort of get in on various research projects and work as a research assistant on those. So we're currently doing a research project on birth in the time of COVID. And that is an international study. So we're looking at how COVID has impacted midwives and birthing women and their partners as well. So that's got some really interesting uh, findings about the massive impact of that. That's my academic stream of work. And I also have an online platform which allows for uh, education. So I have a website called transformativebirthwork.com. And on there, I sell a course called Transformative Birthwork, and it's designed for midwives, doulas, women, and their support people to basically learn about how a system works, how a hospital system works, and how to advocate for themselves within that system to allow for them to have a physiological birth. And if physiology can unfold, then women can experience positive transformation from their birth experience. So that's the aim of the online course. And um, yeah, on a personal note, I have two children who were both born at home here in our Blue Mountains home, and we would probably call ourselves homesteaders. So veggie gardening and goats and all the things. Oh, so amazing. yeah, that's our life. Mm, yes. Yeah. So that's my work. Um, I also have a PhD and it's on, it's called birth outside. The Side note, no big deal. PhD here. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> yes, <laughs> just to add on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's how that's what I do. And how did you get into this? Yes. Uh, so when I I actually first studied as a naturopath, so working with nutrition and herbal medicine and natural therapies, and then was really interested in specialising in women and children. So then when I thought, well, how do I get these skills? I thought maybe I could study midwifery. So I did. And in the process of studying midwifery, discovered home birth and then just started following that rabbit hole into discovering what physiological birth was about and how it unfolded and how do you be with birth as a midwife and all of the home birth work. Um, I started off with Ina Mae Gaskin's work. So her book, Spiritual Midwifery, she was actually a midwife in, in the US okay. um, in the 70s. So Ina Mae Gaskin, so I started reading her work and that sort of led me into the home birth world. And so as soon as I finished my training, I went straight into home birth um, and I didn't do any 
sort of hospital experience, which was very, a lot of people found it very bizarre. And as I look at it now, I thought, you know, that's crazy. But <laughs> it's given me a really unique way of being with birth that I only really understand birth from a physiological perspective. I don't understand birth interventions or, you know, using that to manipulate the birth process. So I feel like that's unique in itself that not many midwives have the privilege of only working with physiological birth. Um, so I actually found a, a beautiful midwife in the area who was willing to allow me to sort of apprentice with her. So for a year, I followed her around. Wow. To everywhere it was probably a wild schedule. Sorry? The schedule was probably wild. Oh, yeah. And she, she didn't live close by. So I was driving all kinds of distances to be with birth. And I just wanted to learn from her. And she was an experienced midwife. And she really showed me how to do, you know, how to be in business as a home birth midwife, how to care for women in a different way and how to be with birth at home. So if it wasn't for her, I, you know, that would have been really hard for me to get in. So um, part of my role now as a ex more experienced private midwife is I also do the same thing for Oh, that's so midwives. nice. You give back. Yeah, that's right. I just think that's how I got in and I feel like that's how midwives can get into private practice midwifery is to just have someone to show them. Um, so, yes, that's how I started and then have just never stopped. And what's your favourite part of it? Oh, I, I don't know if I can pick a favourite. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love only being accountable to women. The only person who I'm working for is the woman who's hired me as her midwife. Yeah. I don't work for a hospital. I don't, I'm not, um, you know, I'm accountable to our registration body, but they're not dictating the details of how I'm supposed to provide care. But so you do I'm, sometimes go to hospitals with your woman. That's right. So if a woman chooses to give birth in hospital or we transfer in from a home birth, then I go with her as her advocate. So rather than her clinician or her, you know, her care provider, yeah. I go with her as her advocate, which, you know, if a woman requires hospital care, then I think she also requires a particular type of midwife. And for me, not having that level of experience in hospital I appreciate the skill of the hospital midwives when we need them. And so then for me, that my role is then to support the woman where she's finding herself now in a yeah. hospital situation, um, which is partly how transformative birth work, the online course developed, is that I noticed I used particular skills and strategies when I was advocating for women in hospital that helped them to sort of navigate and manipulate the system to get what they wanted. Uh, so that kind of built up over time. And then I realized what I was doing and sort of put words to it. And, tried <laughs> to get, and now everyone can have that information <laughs> of how to advocate for themselves. Um, yeah, so that's, um, yeah, so that's definitely my favorite part is that I'm an autonomous practitioner and that my allegiance is with the woman and not with a service so much. Right. And how many women do you typically work with at the same time? Yes, it depends on that situation. So my husband and I, uh, we both, we homeschool our children as well. So Oh, we it's amazing, to, especially with all this. Uh, yeah. 
Perfect. <laughs> it's right. We didn't feel so the COVID impact so much. Nothing. We I'm sh- like just. Wow. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So we have a bit of a flexible work life. So it depends on how much work he has on and how much I have on. But a comfortable workload for me with our lifestyle is two women a month. Um, but last year I took on a lot more because he was home a lot more. So I was doing three or four a month wow. regularly. And that's, that's for me, that's full time. Um, and yes, but two is a really comfortable kind of situation. And then I work as a backup midwife for other midwives in the area as well. Very cool. We, yeah. When do you typically um, start meeting them? So they, ha- they hire you. And it's word of mouth, your website, your YouTube, your what, however they find you. <clears throat> and when do, is your first meeting, I guess? Consultation or how's it? I mean, again, we, I just go, I feed off what the women need. So some women have a really solid plan and they say, look, I've seen my doctor already and he's given me a referral to you and I'm ready to start and, I've, and I want to have these particular tests. And so I you know, hearing what they're saying will sort of go, okay, we need to get started. Others will call and say, look, I'm four weeks pregnant. Can you be my midwife? <laughs> and and I'll just kind of ask them, okay, what have you got planned for your early pregnancy? Some of them don't want any scans or any blood tests or they don't want to engage with a GP and they're feeling really confident. And they'll say, oh, look, well, let's just meet when I'm 12 weeks. And so, again, I don't have any expectations on women. I you know, really feed off what they want. Some want care really early on. Others are happy to wait a little. So, but for me, you know, meeting women around 12 weeks at the latest yeah. is, I feel like, a, a nice place for me to start as well. So that's what I go for. If they're not really sure, I said, I'll say, well, how about 12 weeks? And yeah. It works. Um, yeah. So I'm going to bounce back because I think that this, um, the COVID study that you're doing, when is that going to be released? Because I'm very curious to know the outcome of that. Yes. Will you so do a review we, on it on your YouTube? Like you'd normally do those reviews? Will you? I will. When it comes okay. out, I'll definitely review it on the YouTube. Uh, certainly anything that I write, I can easily do a review on. And I review other people's research too. But, you know, definitely if something comes out, I'll be onto it. But uh, so that one, it's in the process. So we've already done the interview. There's few different segments so we've already interviewed the number of people that we wanted to interview we are currently surveying women so there's a big survey that's out and we've surveyed about 5,000 women for that already and this is across the world or only Australia this is we've done the Australian arm of it but other universities and other researchers are picking up on the uh, the method I suppose that we've used and replicating it as we go so we're hoping that when it comes time to publish there's data from all different countries and then we are interviewing oh we've done all the interviews sorry so the survey is out for women and that's already rolling there's a follow-up survey for women and we're also doing one for midwives so we haven't yet collected all the data but we're hoping to publish something this year but i imagine that the bulk of the publishing will be done next year gotcha yeah i imagine that the statistics would be much higher like i'm just i mean i'm because me also i've gone i went through a pregnancy in the mid april so the middle of covid and i was i already was too far along but i started doing research on if i could have a midwife or a birthing center or something because i was 
petrified of the hospital, but come to find out when I went to the hospital, everything was completely fine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing women, and even as my work as a private midwife, seeing women who are really frightened by what they might be presented with at the hospital yeah. and, and trying to come over to home birth. The problem in Australia is that the number of home birth midwives is so few and we're already booked. So wow. it's very hard to take new clients at the last minute. Right. I know I've taken a few that I've sort of thought, oh, yeah, I could probably fit you in. So there's definitely a movement of women away from the hospital. And I think that COVID has really highlighted the limitations of hospital-based care. And what we are definitely seeing anecdotally in the research is that midwives who work autonomously and women who have their own midwives have been able to adapt a lot faster to the circumstances yet still provide care whereas hospital services seem to be floundering about how do we provide women with care in a safe way uh, and it seems as though their services are not very adaptable or sustainable for this kind of chaos but what we've noticed is that midwives who are autonomous and women who are making the decisions to have a private midwife or their own midwife have been able to ride this a lot smoother. It is a, it's a weird, it's such a weird time, but it's definitely, um, I could see how it's becoming much more popular, but also I don't know about even other parts of the U S let alone over there. But in New York in general, it seems like people are really, and it might be part due to COVID, but it might just be where we are in life. But it seems like people are really going to holistic, um, natural things. So I think that it's obviously that's where things are headed, it seems like. And I really liked, um, I like that even though you're, midwifery is holistic and natural you use statistics and numbers to back up like with data not just um I don't know if you memorize any of your numbers offhand but um I was watching your YouTube video with um the spontaneous breathing versus the um counted breaths at the hospital and it's really interesting because having gone through it relatively recently, of course, I remember every, like everything pretty vividly. Um, yes. so it's, it is, it's really wild. I do think that, um, it's, this is what we're made for. Like, this yes. is truly what our bodies are created for. So it only makes sense that we should be able to do this without all the bells and whistles and all the, I mean, it's called labor because it's work. It is work. You know, like yeah. it, for a reason, but I think that it's, I don't know. I really like, I like what you're doing and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Well, and I think too, you know, as an academic, I want to make sure that my practice is evidence-based and when you actually start sifting through and looking through the evidence about birth, actually physiological uninterrupted birth with minimal intervention always comes out on top in the research. The problem is, is that there's a cultural and social belief that birth doesn't work and that you need some kind of savior to retreat, to, to rescue you from, you know, your female brokenness 
and inability to give birth, exactly. which is not true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, they, they so frighten you. They really make it yeah. scary. And it's, it is like, it can get in your head. Like I didn't read one book. I didn't do read. I didn't do anything because before, when, during my pregnancy, because I didn't want to be afraid. Like I didn't want to get caught up in all the stuff. Yeah. And fear is the, is the opposite to oxytocin. You know, fear induces adrenaline, which turns off oxytocin, which is what we need to give birth. And a fearful woman is a compliant woman. So if women are in fear of birth, then they will comply with whatever they're told to do in order to reduce the chances of things going wrong. So fear is a really effective tool. So when you can keep women in fear about birth, you can also control women in birth. So when you take the fear away and you have autonomous women, all of a sudden it's not an adrenaline governed situation. It's governed by oxytocin and love and that makes birth work. But if we give women power, that's frightening to the, the patriarchal approach to it's birth. It's wild, right? Like, I don't get yes, it. So I don't get it. One of my it doesn't friends, make sense. One of my friends, her, she has nine siblings. And all of her siblings were born somewhere else. Like, she was born in Japan. One was in Germany. One was in Vienna. Like, all over because her parents were traveling for, I think they were teachers or they were doing something. So they were, and they, they weren't, like, so wealthy. So she was telling me at one, and the age gap is pretty huge. She was telling me at one point that she, her mom was literally on like just a metal table and um, some, I want to say it wasn't, I want to say like Taiwan or something, like some crazy place. And she said, and she just, and I don't think that necessarily having so many kids makes it less frightening because from my understanding, every birth is different. Every pregnancy, even from the same person, every experience is different because obviously it's a different person. But she said that it's with her, and obviously she's just one of nine, so she only heard what her mom said. But you being the professional, her mom wasn't, um, she wasn't induced, so sometimes the kids went longer than the two weeks uh, or 14 days or whatever it is. Like there's different times that are recommended um, and she never had any sort of pain meds, maybe like, um, uh, like a regional one, if something happened and she needed to be sewed up, but that even then it's like, what, like, why, why are we so pushed into this corner and forced to do something that's the most natural thing? Yes. And I, you know, I really think it comes down to the real desire to keep women tethered. Or money? Controlled. Could it be money? Potentially, potentially money. I mean, obstetrics is young. In terms of a profession, obstetrics is young. You know, it's no more than 100 years old. Yeah, so it's young. Fact, very young. Midwifery goes back to, I mean, in biblical times, midwives yeah. are mentioned in the Bible, you know, as the care providers. And I love the biblical midwives because they were told by by Pharaoh to kill the newborn Jewish babies. And the midwives, you know, fabulous subversive kind of uh, midwives, they 
they used to go to the birth, the Jewish birth, and they would tell Pharaoh, oh, the Jewish women are just so vigorous in birth. They have their babies before we even get there. So we can't do anything that you're telling us to do. And so, you know, this profession of midwifery and women being with women to give birth, that is age old. We've been doing that since the beginning of time. What's brand new and what is a huge human experiment is to expose women to medical doctors during the time of birth. That's the new experimental intervention in birth. It's not it's not it's not some kind of age old wisdom so what's happened is through a series of historical events medical uh, practitioners have been able to position themselves as the authority over birth and that you know if you read through the history of midwives and women and obstetrics it's it's barbaric and it's rooted in the patriarchy where you know men feel like they somehow should own and control um you know, women's processes. So, you know, and we have research now that shows that private obstetric care with private obstetricians, I mean, it generates a lot of money for them, but the outcomes are not as good as having your own midwife. I think that it gives a lot of hope. Like it makes me as someone who I'm going to have more kids and having gone through a weird situation and here in the US, I think that it's very normal. And this is what happened to me. I had my OB. I thought she was a, my delivery doctor at week 40 because I went to 41 weeks and then they were pushing and pushing and pushing me to, to induce me. And I kept fighting back and saying, no, I just want it to be as natural as possible. Um, I ended up having a different, I had a delivery doctor who I never met before. And then I ended up having an episiotomy that I obviously wasn't like, it's not like he said, Hey, so now I'm going to cut you from your butthole to your vagina. Like, no, he just, like, I just remember I'm grabbing these huge shears and be, me being like, what, like, too late. Like, yeah. So no level of uh, interaction about, is it okay? This is what I need to do. Nothing. Without your consent. Zero. Nothing. Was, yeah. It's so sad. You know, it's very sad. It's not evidence-based. It's, uh, it's aggressive, often violent care i don't get something it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense from the evidence about how birth should be done it doesn't make sense on a physiological level that you would expose a woman to that which is undergoing a physiological process when her body's doing something it was made for uh you know the way we could explain it is that it makes a lot of money to position yourself as somebody who's the person that should be caring for every single pregnant woman. Woman, I mean, so many people have babies. So many yeah. women have babies. So if you can make money off that process by keeping women fearful, by telling them that they are the experts and the authority they're going to keep you safe, they then can position themselves as the rescuers who can make sure that you are safe and that everyone's alive at the end. And so then women think that anything that was done to them during childbirth was in the interest of their well-being and the safety of their baby, which is not true. Because right. what people are doing is not evidence-based and actually dangerous. So, you know, there's a lot of interest in getting women through quickly. The quicker women are having babies, the more people exactly Just cut, induce, cesareans. You know, the, the quicker you can process women through the birth process, 
the more money you can make. So there's definitely that element. And if women look at the research around birth, you'll see that where birth is left uninterrupted and supervised by a quiet, gentle, respectful practitioner, women do better. The outcomes are better for women. And you have a video on this on your YouTube that I was watching that it's, it's very, like it's number scientific data based. So it's like a, like, I wish I could have seen this when I, like, now that I've seen it and I do plan to have more kids, I, it gives you such an educated, like idea on what you're going to do or at least a direction because even I feel like you it's there's such a lack of um information here and it that also goes to the fear thing like it's just a lack of answering questions or you know like getting more out of my OB which is you know she has this patient and that patient and it's constant 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 and it's like did it it really took 39 weeks for her to tell me that someone else would be my delivery doctor crazy yeah crazy and you know and what we know as well is that a trusted care provider and somebody that you know who you can communicate with is going to be the best care provider in the long term in terms of birth planning and then when you have some stranger walking you don't know their philosophy you don't know their approach maybe that doctor gives episiotomies to everybody it's crazy you say that because i said to my husband i said i think that that's this is just what this guy did like i I truly believe, and it's not, I'm not like judging him, I'm not, but I think that that's just his thing. Like every single, because I went to his office for the two week checkup and the general clientele, it looked like they, pro, I, I don't know, I just had a weird feeling that he probably did it with every single one of his patients. And he's been doing, he said he was doing this for like 37 years or something. And it's like... So he may have started and never stopped. Yeah, because it's easy just to grab the kid out that way. Yeah. Yes. Quicker. A lot of people think it's better. We know from evidence that it's not. Uh, And so... But if you had had that doctor throughout your whole care and you'd expressed to this doctor, you know, I don't want an episiotomy or I want want to do things as naturally as possible. You know also why it's crazy is because when I went in, like... When he first came in, I said to him, I wanted to do a, I wanted to have a perennial massage and I like, I wanted to have it as natural as possible. And I, I made it super clear to him and he was like, okay, okay. No. So they say one thing and then do the complete opposite. So yeah, my question, I have a question for you though, about your, uh, (laughs) enough of that. Um, do you ever do water births or is that a whole different thing? I often do water births. So I actually have inflatable birth pools that I take with me to births. Wow. That's so cool. Sorry. I just have a message from my client. She's not having a baby (laughs) right now. This Um, is the one that could go into labor now? The one, yeah. She's just sort of said, no, it's all fizzled out, which is we've got time <laughs> um so yes so water birth so i have birth pools that i take to women and they have a liner and a pump and i explain to them how they can fill and empty their pool and we, we go through all of this before we get to the birth obviously and i drop the pool off at their home 
before before they go into labor so yes a lot of my clients choose water birth mostly because at home we don't offer any form of medical pharmacological pain relief so women are relying on other tools so we use the water keeping moving in labor having massage uh, heat packs i have a tens machine that i that we can use a what machine other supportive it's called a TENS machine, T-E-N-S machine. Okay, I know. They use it. Yeah, it's it's amazing the way it works. It just like confuses pain signals and just dulls down the that's sensations. That's cool. Yeah. So and that's completely low risk. You you know, it's a handheld device. Women can control it. It's got no side effects. It's not medication. Uh, so that's magic. So that will often get women through hard periods, and then. You know, don't underestimate the power of being told that you can do things. So if a woman is feeling the strength and thinking, oh my gosh, this is strong. And imagine the difference between somebody walking up to you and saying, you're obviously in a lot of pain. How about we give you an epidural or this medication? Or, and that says to the woman, look, you're really not coping. Why don't we just sedate this whole situation? Versus somebody walking up and going, it, I know it's hard. It really is hard, but we're all going to do this. We're here for you. We're going to get you through this. Let's do one at a time. So having a care team that is actually on your side and able to actually fill you with confidence rather than doubt, then that's a big, that's a powerful tool to get you through labor. So yes, water birth happens. I call it the home birth epidural because there's a point in labor where women just think, this is insane. What are we doing? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, right, I think it might be full time. And women get in and they love it and it just calms the situation. And it's just a tool, you know, you can move from one to the other. If you don't like it, you get out, move to the next thing. So we do water birth all the time. Is the water warm or cold? Warm, yeah, definitely warm, about body temperature. Okay. And we, you know, we have pots going on the stove to top it up with warm water. That's, you know, a job in itself. That's pretty much what I do the whole time. <laughs> Running back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we have all kinds of different tools just to support women through this process. That need, you know, the, the power of birth and the power of pain is actually positive in labor. And so we want to support that process and allow it to unfold in a in a comfortable space it's important and i mean the way that you explained how your the different things that your body produces versus what the the hospitals give you and fear and how everything just kind of works it makes sense that yeah just let it go mm, that's right and and that's what the transformative birth work course is about as well it's about identifying how the body works in labor and how do you facilitate and encourage that instead of keep blocking the natural process of labor and birth uh, so yeah i think it's important for women to actually understand how their body works in labor and then choose a birth situation that's going to favor that and then you're going to get the, the least complications and if there is a complication, it's a genuine complication, not one that's arisen out of interventions. Because, uh, so, yeah. well, and I, when you said that before, I was thinking, so they give you Pitocin, right? That's what makes a water break? 
And when that happens, the baby's heart drops. And it's because they're doing all these things to you. Like that one, they're causing it. So that one naturally happened. And it's like, truly, they are the ones creating the the issues. Yes. And then they're hailed as the superheroes when they rescue you from that situation that they put you in. And then women are grateful for the care, right? So, oh, your baby went into distress. And so we had to rush you in for a cesarean. Aren't you glad we were there because your baby wouldn't have survived? Where in actual fact, if you hadn't have been induced or your labor augmented and tried to speed up, there's a good chance your baby would not have gone into distress. And so, you know, the use of pitocin or what we call syntocin on here in Australia gives your body an unnatural level of contraction. Because during labor, when your uterus contracts, the, the baby, the baby's blood supply is interrupted. And now babies are designed to cope with that. They're designed to cope with the stress of labor. It actually finishes off their development. That's so interesting. That. Sorry? That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So actually going into labor finishes off your baby's development. But if you impose an unnatural Hold on, time out. to labor. That is crazy that... I never, I mean, I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm really learning a lot here. But going into labor finishes the baby's development. So when people have these scheduled T-sections and they they do all these things and mess with it, which obviously is really annoying to me. I'm all fluttered by it. <clears throat> That's mind-blowing. Yes. So the babies, if we're an elective cesarean the baby's not finished. And when you look at the statistics for respiratory distress for babies, the babies who are most likely to need to be um, cared for in a neonatal intensive care or special care unit are the ones who've had elective cesarean sections because the last thing to develop is their respiratory and nervous system. And so they come out not really ready to take a first breath. And then we wonder why they don't do so well. And then they off they go to have special care in a neonatal unit whereas in fact if you allowed that baby to finish its growth and then have the finishing off of you know needing that those contractions the stress of contractions to finish off their development they would have done a lot better and in fact i have had clients who for medical reasons do require an a cesarean section and what i will always encourage them to do is if it's safe to continue is to actually continue their pregnancy wait until they go into labor experience some labor before having their cesarean section and so wow. what you know then is that their baby has gestated to the time where it needed to and that it's had the opportunity to have the, a little bit of the stress of contractions to finish off their development and then you're going to have a baby that you already know is ready to be born has had some of the physiology of labor and then and then has a cesarean section for whatever the unique requirements are for that particular woman and baby so there's ways around this as well but you know a baby who's born by cesarean section at 38 weeks maybe was actually going to gestate to 42 weeks so then that leads me to the question that what is safe how long can a baby stay in there well up to 42 weeks is considered normal okay so before 42 weeks 
We don't even really worry. The evidence when you wow, look at evidence, that is so like yeah, yeah, no. I mean, when you look at the research between forty-one and forty-two weeks, you can do an extra level of checking because the the fear about going post dates or overdue is that there's an increased risk of stillbirth for these for these babies. And they say it's a 50% increase in stillbirth for women who go, you know, 41 and a half to 42 weeks past, you know, their due date. It is a 50% increase, but the stillbirth rate was 0.2%, and then it goes up to 0.4%. So it is a 50% increase, but only on 0.2%. Right. It's okay. So minuscule, tiny. So that's the risk. And then then you have to balance, okay, that's the risk of stillbirth if women go post-dates. But what's the risk of inducing... I mean, in Australia, the induction rates are like 30%, and I believe they're a lot higher in America. Probably. Yeah. And so um, you've got to think about, okay, but what damage are we doing by inducing 30% of women to avoid this slightly increased risk of stillbirth, what other complications and what other things are we doing that is actually going to cause more problems? So, yes, I don't have any concern really for women until they're getting close to 42 weeks. And even then, I usually just recommend some additional screening, like an ultrasound, checking the baby's heart rate, checking the blood flow through the placenta and the amount of water around the baby, the amniotic fluid. So, and then if we can tick all these boxes, like, okay, we can see actually that everything is, is okay. Your baby's healthy. You're in an okay situation. And then the woman can make a decision based on her individual needs about if she would like the baby out now or if she's willing to wait until she goes into labor. So, you know, I think they all need to be assessed individually, this blanket sort of use of interventions and strategies for just everybody is pointless because the most really uncertain and unpredictable situation you can be in is to be pregnant and giving birth. I mean, everybody's just goes differently. Every baby's different. So for me, everybody needs different care, not the same care. Well, and I mean, you have created a life. This is what you've basically devoted your life to, which is why it's so cool because you can do that. Like you can, you know, what's that saying? They say, be the change you want to see. So that's what you're doing. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, what else, what other crazy thing could you share? What other crazy thing? Oh, I don't know. I mean, crazy birth things. To me, it's all not crazy. (laughs) To me, it's just this normal. I mean, I, I think for me as a home birth midwife, and seeing only birth unfolding naturally and normally, you start to know birth really intimately. And so I could be in a completely other space, other room to the woman and hear when she's ready to have her baby. Really? And and yeah, and hear where she's up to. So, you know, by the different sounds and how she's behaving. And, you know, I don't, I very rarely do internal vaginal exams to check for dilation. Like not at every birth. Okay. Very occasionally. And so for me, I don't know where women are up to in their labor 
in a in an objective sense. It's all subjective, and I'm using a whole lot of other sort of senses and levels of understanding to know where she's up to. And that works when you know birth, when you can be with birth and sit with women. So I think that's pretty cool because a lot of hospital-based midwives don't have the opportunity to hone those type of skills. They just know how to do really good. What the computer says. Yeah. And, you know, the heart rate's all checked electronically. And so, yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. It's, it's like a superpower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think midwifery done in a watching physiological birth is different. And and I think that's exciting for midwives too to think that actually there is a lot to learn about and from birth as a midwife. Even though birth is the same and has been the same forever, we can keep learning how to be with it and what it is by just watching it rather than listening to the social discourse and the social language about birth, like, oh, birth is dangerous, birth is scary, you must have a doctor, you have to go to hospital. All these things don't teach us about birth, they just give us fear. Right. So if you can learn about birth, you gradually start to realise there's actually not much to be scared of. Well, it's. I mean, I keep saying it, but it's the most natural thing. Like, yes. why... And I do, I like, like when I listen to you and, you know, we're, I like that I, I feel less afraid mm. because the yeah. society or whatever it is, they really make it a scary thing, but it, I don't think it should be. No. And it's only made a scary thing because that's in the interest of your care provider right. that you're scared. Yeah. It's crazy. For me. Yeah. For me, I'm interested in my clients not being scared because if they're frightened, it's not going to work as well. And I'm with them at home. So it's in my best interest that their birth goes well and is safe and that at the end there's a well and healthy mother and a well and healthy baby because, I mean, that's my job is to keep them safe. So for me, if they're not scared, that's safer. Right. Whereas if women are frightened and they're in hospital and they have a doctor to care for them, then fear is beneficial to the practitioner because then you're in a position to open yourself up to, you know, they can manipulate you if you're frightened because they can position themselves as their savior. This is also, a, um, I mean, you do a lot of work obviously around the vagina. So I think that this mm -hmm. is such an interesting thing where they feel like, I mean, and I get some instances like you, it, maybe it's necessary, maybe whatever for these one-off scenarios, but it's such an elastic skin down there, that muscle, like, and I know this is a totally different direction, but if you think about like pornos and stuff, you know, they open those up, like they put crazy things in people's vaginas and it's like, you know, being patient or whatever. So what, yes. like, why I just, it blows my mind because clearly we know that that skin and that muscle's very elastic. So why does it need to be cut or, you know, snipped or any of this? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I've been attending home births for 11 years and I've never cut an episiotomy. Ever. Lucky you. <laughs> uh, you know, so, okay, so that tells you how necessary they are. 
Yeah. And the other thing, I mean, we, I think that the anatomy and function of the vagina and the vulva is so poorly understood that people think it's not a, a, a part, a body organ that can undergo transition. And, you know, we, you know, a penis, it can become erect and then all of a sudden be completely <laughs> flaccid and we just think nothing of it. We don't think, oh my gosh, it's going to tear, it's going to get damaged. How is it going to function afterwards? Oh my gosh, this huge transition that happens. We don't think of vulvas and vaginas as something that can get huge, but they can. I mean, they're, they're supposed they can, to. <laughs> they do. Right? I mean, they do, right? <laughs> they, because we've all been born out of a vagina for the most of history. Yeah. I mean, the cesarean's not very old. I mean, the cesarean is, is you know, in my grandmother's lifetime was developed. You wow. know, previous to that, everyone was born out of a vagina. And so it's got to be a magical piece of anatomy, right? And we have a part of our body between your anus and your vagina. It's called the perineum. It is a completely different collection of tissues to anywhere else in your body. When you, if you were to take it apart, it's spongy. It has a massive blood supply, huge um, lymphatic system in there for the immune system. It's designed, if you were to look at it, it's designed to stretch, be malleable. It's designed to tear, but it's designed to also repair. So when I speak to my clients about the possibility of tearing during the birth or your perineum being damaged, I say, well, yeah, that might happen, but actually we're also designed to repair ourselves because it's got a huge blood supply. Your immune system's got direct access. The tissues there are designed for healing. They're designed for not a lot of scar tissue. So that makes it a regenerating area. And you quicker with all that supply and quick turnover. Much quicker. And then also when you tear, you tear along a path of least resistance where, where maybe it's not the most important part of your anatomy and it will repair itself in that way. When you get an episiotomy, it's indiscriminate. It'll, it could cut through a major part of your pelvic floor muscle, part of your clitoris, your, the internal anatomy of your clitoris where they cut. And so we know that women who have these artificial cuts have a lot longer recovery and potential lot longer impact than women who had a natural tear because we, we are we're designed to have babies out, out of our vagina. And so it would make a whole lot of sense that we should recover from that process and have the anatomy that recovers and adapts to that process. So, you know, but again, fear makes muscles and your body tighten and tense yes. and not relax and let things out. If you're relaxed and you feel safe and you feel confident and you know that no one's coming at you with scissors or hands or fear, all of a sudden you can let a baby out. You know, I, I think about it like doing a poo. Like if you're on the toilet and someone's saying to you, push it out, go on, you've got to do it now. If you don't do it now, we're gonna we're just going to pull it out. And And having an audience to do a poo, I mean, that's not... I mean, it's not going to work. So, whereas if someone's, look, I'm going to be outside, you do your poo in your time, and when you're finished, you know, 
that's it. It's done. If you need a hand, let me know, right? Probably you're going to do a poo. Definitely. <laughs> and so childbirth is, is physiologically, you know, a process in the same way as doing a poo. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, I, I really really like this talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just, the, and I don't know if it's maybe where I am or you don't hear this. Like I've never heard this. I've never. And the other thing is that even if, so obviously I have this podcast, so I've been talking to a lot of women about their vaginas and their babies and this tear or that tear, but even then, it's it's different hearing it from the professional who's on the other side of, okay, we're not rushing it. It's, it'll come when it's ready. Yeah. So it's just so refreshing. Slow is better. Slow is better. Slower processed. I mean, tells the woman's body, it's time to open. It's time to open. We're going to gently open. We're going to need to let the baby out. Whereas if a baby rushes through, like that's as much as a surprise the woman's body as you know as to the practitioner who suddenly is <laughs> a baby um, yeah and I think women aren't I think what we need to know is that we've been lied to about birth that society has lied to us about birth they don't want us to know the truth because the truth is empowering it's that and the, and truth, the is, truth makes less money for them yes because they've commodified birth by making us think we need them, they've been able to make it a commodity. Whereas actually, we can give birth without anybody. And most of the time, I do nothing at birth besides checking in baby's heartbeat, checking that the mum doesn't, you know, the woman doesn't need anything from me. Clinically speaking, my input is very little. It's about creating a supportive space that will allow the woman's body to work. And then only interfering if it's obvious that physiology is not unfolding as it should. And my transfer to hospital rate is about 10%. How many and breaths have you had? How many have you given or delivered? I have, I've lost count. Wow. I've lost count. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it would be in the hundreds, I, but I, I haven't. It's amazing. Yeah, I should count. Yeah, like you should. Count. You should make a, I don't know, yeah. a video on it or something. I need to do that. I need to go through 11 years of <laughs> clinical yeah, work. Yeah, it's, it's so incredible. Calculating. Yeah. So I think, you know, and, and we don't always transfer for an emergency. Sometimes it's a long labor or a woman wants something that she didn't previously want. So, you know, when you think about that, for me, 90% of the time, things go perfectly fine with very little input from me. So if we think about that as birth rather than, believing that every single birth needs something from an external expert, think that a small percentage, even let's be generous and say 10% of births require expert intervention, then, you know, um, yeah, I think that's more realistic than to think that birth is always scary and always dangerous and always needs somebody. Um, in Australia here, and you probably have quite a movement in America of free birth. I was gonna ask you about that now because I saw that video you just did. Tell us, so I never heard of it, um, but tell, tell, tell. Yeah, 
yeah so that was it was the topic of my phd so i did my phd was called birthing outside the system and it was looking at the choices that women make that are completely outside of what a hospital system or the medical system would be telling us is safe or reasonable so i looked at women who choose to have a home birth with a midwife even though they have risk factors that would sort of normally see them be giving birth in hospital. Like health issues or weight issues or something like this? Health. Age. Yeah, so, you know, previous cesarean section and then they want to have a vaginal birth. Uh, you know, identified issues, gestational diabetes or high blood pressure or anything that, you know, you'd sort of go, yeah, that requires a bit of medical supervision. Uh, and, you know, and then it's, so I looked at, why they make these decisions. Why would you choose to give birth away from a place that might actually be beneficial? And free birth is where women choose to give birth at home with no qualified health professional. And so literally it's just, an, it's just oh, I went into labor and the baby came out and then I went back to bed. So, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always go that way. But, uh, and when we look at why women choose these things, a small percentage of women choose them because they genuinely believe that it's it's the best. But a lot of them actually are doing it in response to a poor maternity care system. Where they look at the system and go, look, I just cannot, I cannot go there again. And so my next option will be to have a home birth with or without a midwife. And that for them feels a lot safer and so what you will have anytime the system becomes it doesn't serve women properly you will increase high-risk home birth and free birth so my prediction for what's going to happen with these COVID restrictions on women in hospital is that they're just going to have enough of the level of control that the hospital will have over their birth and 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 free birth and high-risk home birth is just going to increase you know, you, anytime you repress a group, it doesn't conform. It just gets more aggressive and more disruptive, you know, to, to the piece. So you, you can't, um, you know, the only way, if you want, really want women to use a hospital service, you have to make the hospital service worth using. And it has to be, it has to be good for women. Because women will go where they believe is best. And if the hospital presents itself as a danger, women aren't going to go there. And so that's why there's a growing group of women who are moving away from it. They don't trust it. I like it. So that I like one, it a lot. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's crazy. Like, I can't, I just can't wrap my head around it because it's, it, it is, it's, everything. I just cannot believe how much they've brainwashed us. Yes. And if you can start with the premise that you've been lied to about birth and that probably most of what you know is not true, then that's where you can start to actually rebuild your level of understanding about birth and what it actually is. And I've only been able to do that because I can witness it firsthand. And I still get surprised by birth. I still go, huh, haven't seen that before. Great, okay. <laughs> Ugh, look at that. <laughs> and, you know, some people say, is this normal? I'm like, never seen it before, but everybody seems fine. So, yeah, it's normal. <laughs> you know, uh, so, yeah, I think we just have to trust birth a lot more than what it's what we do at the moment. 
Just, well, you just, know, it's really as normal and as, you know, here, or I don't know if it's the world percentage or what, but 86% of women have babies, right? A huge percent. That's a lot. But there's still so much unknown just during the pregnancy. So like working out and weight training or not, or running or not, or this or that, or, and it goes back to every single person's different. So like throughout my entire pregnancy, I got so much crap about my workouts and I shouldn't be weight training. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. Don't do handstands. Don't do this. Don't like all these things. And it's like, I've been doing it for my whole life. I'm not going to stop. And lo and behold, everything's fine. Like, yeah, you are not in a state. And that's what's happened is we've made pregnancy an illness, a disability. That's what they've created. Right. It's so disgusting. So what they've done is they've pathologized it. So they've put it out of the realm of normal and they've pathologized it and made it a medical condition. And what that it's called medicalization to make something medical. So in order for a doctor to have jurisdiction over a particular thing, it must first be made medical. So that's what happened. That's what happened as obstetrics rose as a profession. They, the first step would be to medicalize childbirth. So childbirth was a normal life event, therefore not the jurisdiction of medical practitioners. It can only come under the authority and jurisdiction of medicine if it's medicalized. So cue fear, cue dramatic stories, you know, all these things. Okay, so all of a sudden they've managed to gradually pathologize childbirth. Okay, now who has authority over pathology? Medical practitioners. So all of a sudden, and so now we're sick. Now we're pregnant, which means, okay, now you have a condition. You have the condition of pregnancy. We are the experts to care for this. It's been medicalized. It's no longer a normal event. So all of a sudden, we don't have, we're not given the authority to know what's best for ourselves. Whereas for a woman who trusts her body and trusts birth and sees birth as a normal life event still, we can tap into our instinctive instinctive understanding of our own bodies. So like you said, you felt fine to continue with weight training and all these things. My mom's a yoga teacher and she was, when I was pregnant, she was like, come and do some yoga. Every time I tried to do yoga, it just felt wrong. So you didn't do it. I didn't do it. And I had previously been doing yoga and I was very fit and I felt very capable and healthy. And I was doing it. I thought, oh, I don't like it. It makes me feel nauseous. My uterus is in my lungs. I just, it doesn't feel right. But you know your body. That's right. Whereas, but if I had been somebody else, I thought, no, yoga is good for me. I should keep going. Maybe that would have been a problem. But so I think that once you medicalize something, you take, uh, you take away the person's trust to be able to do it themselves. And so if you, but if you're allowed to tap, if you're told your instinct is powerful, you tap into that. Uh, then all of a sudden, if something doesn't feel right, you don't push that to the side. You pay attention to that and you're like, okay, this doesn't feel right. Something's going on. I can, I have this intuitive knowledge and understanding in my body that I should be tapping into. And I'll always tell my clients that, you know, if you don't feel like that something's right, call me straight away and I will come over. 
we can talk about it, we can work out what I can offer you in terms of helping you get answers and get to the bottom of this because you are the authority on your body. So we, you know, when you medicalize something, you take away someone's health literacy. We have a level of health literacy where we know about our bodies, but if we're told, oh no, this is a sickness, you don't know about this, you leave this to the experts, you just let all that go. So women have lost it. We don't know how to tap into it. But if we did, I mean, women know. I've had women tell me in labor, the baby's stuck, it's not coming. Wow, really? It's not gonna come. They, women know, I mean, you can work things out. Um, I knew my babies intimately when I was pregnant. I named them, I knew their personalities. I knew my first was gonna come early. My whole mantra to him throughout my pregnancy was don't you break your waters too early, you're gonna be born at home. You can't come too early. And I told my midwife, I said, this baby's gonna be born early. How do you feel about that? I want you to have your gear here before normal, before you normally do, because he's coming early. And um, you know, and he did, 36 weeks, I went into labor. Wow. And everyone yeah, and everyone's like, how do you feel about it? I'm like, no, he's ready. He'll be fine. He will be fine. I feel like he's ready. I knew he was coming early. We've both been preparing for an early birth. Um, I mean, so much that I even prepared to do, um, I don't know if you've heard about kangaroo care, but basically if a baby's born prematurely, what we know is that it actually, if you do skin to skin, extended skin to skin in like this little pouch, um, and the babies are kept with their mothers, they recover a lot faster than if they're put in an incubator. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So I um, I was all prepared for kangaroo care. I'm like, this baby's coming early. He's going to need kangaroo care. I'm going to need to, you know, do all these things. So I actually had prepared for all of that. And, um, and yeah, he did. And so I think, and for me, that was just... Yeah, he knew this was happening, and I was not surprised. I knew he was a boy. I knew what his personality was going to be like, and he is like that, and my second is the same. Um, I knew them from the beginning, but that was because I was allowed to tap into that. Uh, and so I think every woman has the capability, but we just haven't honed it because we've been too long told that we're not the experts, but we are the experts. Well, and you know, the other issue, well, I have two things. One, I don't want to forget. It's about the steamer. I don't know if you know about a steam, a vag vagina steam. Oh yeah, I've heard, yes, heard of it. I don't know, I was gonna ask you. And then the other thing before I forget is, and this is, this is something that blows my mind. My OB, and I don't expect every single woman to have a baby. I understand that you're a doctor and you've been studying and whatever, and you don't need to have time for a baby or you don't want a baby, whatever. But I, she couldn't answer one, any one of my questions that I had. Like, I didn't really have very many, but I had one, like, and this is the ongoing one because, um, I take collagen. So like, you know, and the, your linea alba is made up of collagen and I've been taking it for years, like, but even before I was pregnant. So I asked her, is it okay if I continue taking it or, and she she's on a group chat with a bunch of other doctors and she said, uh, uh, there's not really a lot of studies done with it. And I don't know, like she didn't really have an answer. There were, and there were just, a, I asked that question. I asked one other question. I can't remember what it was, but, um, it's like, it makes sense that it'd be safe to take it. But I think that it's, there's so many things that are wrapped up in the, the small font of, well, I don't want to be responsible. 
for whatever, you know, you take too much collagen and then your baby's a collagen ball. I don't know, something that's stupid, <laughs> but you know, like a little whatever. But it's like, yeah. it it's, it's almost like they just don't want to be liable for anything that might happen. Yes. Because a lot of, most of my pregnancy, anything that I would ask, she would say, oh, well, you seem to know your body. And I say, okay, I do, so never mind. And I think we sometimes expect of doctors more than what they can offer. We need to really know that they are medically trained. They know medicine. They know pharmacology. They don't understand nutrition. Correct. Or physical you know, therapy, any of that. Any of that. Any <laughs> natural therapies, any supplementation, all these things. So, you know, expecting answers from a doctor that they don't, understand you know we need to understand their scope of practice but the other thing is is they need to understand their scope of practice too and stop working outside of their scope and what is outside of their scope is normal healthy women who are pregnant are not in the scope of medical care they shouldn't be being cared for by medical practitioners if they're not in a medical situation so yeah i think that we expect too much of gp of doctors we expect them to know things they never thought to even have to know. Yeah. And then, but then also they do things that they shouldn't be doing. They shouldn't be looking after well, healthy women. It's not evidence-based. It's not appropriate. <laughs> it causes more problems than it, it solves. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if we can have a clear definition of, you know, women are not sick and doctors should look after medical things, then we don't have a problem. <laughs> You know, it's so, so I spoke with a physical uh, therapist or a pelvic floor specialist, so a physical therapist here, um, not so long ago. And she was saying how typically it's the midwives and the doulas that send her the patients because they know that these women, they need a little extra help with their pelvic floor and working those muscles and this and that after, after delivery, where she said it's very rare for doctors to send. And I completely get that because like I've been in fitness for a long time. And when someone comes in for a surgery or they've, you know, they had some sort of operation, the doctor never, not never, very rarely sends them to do physical therapy. They're normally just like, okay, go on with life. And it doesn't work that way. Like when your body's been through a trauma or something, typically it needs help back. That's right. There's a recovery period. Yeah, that's right. And I think to understand that we can't give everybody everything that they need and that bodies do need a holistic, multi-dimensional approach to recovery, mm -hmm. that's important. I mean, I send, I, I tell all my clients, find yourself a physical therapist, osteopath, a chiropractor, or somebody who's gonna help you look after your body throughout this pregnancy, an acupuncturist, always a, phys a physiotherapy, review at the end just kind of like okay see where you need to come back to you know this takes time to recover mm -hmm. there are things we can do to bring yourself right back to full health and to have supportive therapies that can help women so yeah I think we all as practitioners need to know that there's a limit to what we can offer and that then we need to pass the woman you know information that would be helpful for you know the other things that they need um, yeah so to think that you've got the answer to everything 
He's a little bit arrogant. <laughs> a little bit. So what do you know about, or do you know about steaming, vaginal steams? I have friends who do it. Okay. I have never been motivated to find out really <laughs> what it does. I know how they do it. Uh, yeah, I have not really been motivated to consider it. What do you, do you know anything about it? No, I, I mean, I was, I found someone who does it or I guess has a business of selling it and doing it. So I was curious, I was going to ask her if she'd be interested in sharing more, but I wasn't, I wanted to get a little information from someone who's, you know. Yeah, yeah I haven't, I haven't recommended it, but mostly, I mean, I'm, yeah, I haven't looked into it okay. enough. Easy. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it would be super easy to just keep talking, but um, <laughs> but um, do you have anything else you want to share, like your website or any social media or pro other projects you're working on or anything else you want to tell? Because I love hearing things you have to share. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the research stuff I share. So on Instagram, I have an account at Melanie the Midwife. Same thing on Facebook. There's a group at Melanie the Midwife. My YouTube channel is Melanie the Midwife. <laughs> so easy to find. Uh, for actual midwifery services, if you want to hire me as a midwife, which probably none of the US <laughs> wouldn't be US audience, but uh, my website is www.melaniethemidwife.com. But something that is accessible to everybody is the transformative birth work course. So that's at www.transformativebirthwork.com. And the course is there for women, doulas, midwives, obstetricians, if you want. I've interviewed five other experts. So some of them are, um, one is an obstetrician that's a professor, professor of midwifery. There's a couple of PhDs in there, also myself. So we've all kind of fed into the information that's on that. So transformative birth work is the change that I feel like needs to happen in birth. And I'd love to get that out to everybody. Uh, but yes, certainly a lot of the research stuff you'll find on the Instagram and Facebook and on the YouTube channel. And then there's always free stuff that I send out on transformative birth work. So you can sign up to the mailing list. So on the website, as soon as you click onto it, there is three free webinars on how to advocate for yourself in hospital. So if you register on there, you get that. There is also, and this is brand, brand, brand new, and may, again, might be for an Australian audience, but I am starting a midwifery mentorship program for midwives who want to move from hospital-based care into providing home-based care for women and working as private practitioners. So I'm kind of setting up a remote mentorship program that will mean that midwives can have support for the whole year, uh, even if they're not sort of close to me. Well, congrats. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so very that's cool. Brand new. And yeah. So click into all that, follow, subscribe, like, get access, sign up to the you know, the mailing list, and then you'll have access to everything that I'm working on. on. And I like to put it out all on the Instagram, all on um, social media and things just to help educate people about birth. And you have a lot to share, so I really appreciate this. 
Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so much fun to chat. It has. Yes, thank you. Um, well, good luck with your delivery that you are waiting on. Thank you. And be well and stay well. Um, that's it. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> thanks.